So villains. Do you have any favorite villains? I've always liked Gary Oldman in The Professional. Oh, with um, Natalie Portman? Yeah, and he gives that little speech on classical music. So you probably like like that one. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, he he says that Beethoven starts out really bombastic, but then he gets a little bit boring. And that's why he stopped killing all the, the family members, because he likes to start bombastic. But then he finds the killing boring. And it's a, like Gary Oldman, man. He knocks it out of the park. <laughs> I mean, I would probably disagree with some of what he says about Beethoven, especially since some of Beethoven's greatest music was closer to the end of his life. Like, I think Symphony Number no. 9. But uh, do the symphonies themselves start bombastic? Is that... I don't know. Symphony Number no. 9 has a pretty crazy finale, and it's a favorite symphony of another uh, villain is the hero character alex from a plot a clockwork orange oh yeah you're right um yeah how about you do you have any particular favorites that stand out you know i was thinking about it and if i go back to when i was a kid one of the villains that i was most fascinated with was magneto from the x-men uh not only did he have really cool powers, he could he could fuck with magnets, right. uh, but you also had the element that he and Xavier used to be friends, and oh. now they're enemies. Uh, so you know when when it's a villain who used to be an ally, you know someone who has a great heel turn, uh, and uh, I I like villains who think that they are right. And Magneto is one of those villains where he has decided on a particular view of the world. And, and in his version, he's the hero. Yeah. Um, were, were, him and Mag, were, were him and Xavier always friends? Was that from the beginning? Or was that kind of like a, let's make this comic book neater? You know how they are? They're, they're always making comic book storylines neater i'm not sure i'm i'm sure that there are others out there who have more encyclopedic knowledge <laughs> of the x-men right. than i do i mean all i know about magneto's backstory was that he was a jewish refugee during world war ii and so not only did he experience the horrors of war, he also, you know, drew the parallel with what they were doing to mutants. So his, you know, his his whole reason for being a villain and reason for for trying to carve out a place for mutants comes from, you know, a real place. Um, but he and Xavier have different, you know, ideas for how to go about it. Right. Yeah. I, um, as someone who's never been a huge X-Men person, I have to say Michael Fassbender as Magneto has gotten me through pretty much that whole franchise of movies. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. he's incredible. He is I never absolute... watched those. Oh, man. I was a big watcher of the cartoon. Yeah, uh, I would say overall the, the X-Men movie franchise is one of varying 
qualities and returns, but uh, overall, Michael Fassbender absolutely crushes it as Magneto, man. He's a great villain. Yeah, he's a great villain as the hero or just a, a straight villain. I I props props to Fassbender. I I would love to um find a way to work Fassbender <laughs> into this <laughs> podcast because I've I've got a lot to say. I mean, 90% of it is about his penis, but the other 10% I think could be a great discussion. <laughs> All right, on to the other villains. Let's do it. This is Necromancer. Necromancer. I'm Shira. I'm a fan of romantic comedies. What kind of movies do you like, Brett? Well, I am a fan of horror movies. What do we do here on this podcast, this here, there podcast? Well, each week we pick a topic and then we review a rom-com from that topic that you pick, a horror movie from that topic that I pick, and then we remix them. Whoop, whoop, whoop. We switch them up. We turn the rom-com into a horror and the horror into a rom-com. And everyone has a good time. Even the bad guys. Even the bad guys have a good time. And we've made some fun bad guys. I I really like our theme this week, which is the villain is the hero. <laughs> Um, I don't know. There, what do you what do you think is so lovable about some villains? Because some villains are indeed lovable. Uh, I think there's probably there's probably like a, a fantasy element, right? Like a, a sort of I, this idea of like this romanticized idea of like I'm I I'm right, and I'm gonna do anything I can to make sure that the entire world sees that I'm right. And in a movie, you don't have to worry about like real stuff. <laughs> I mean, is it really that, or do we like villains because they get to break all the rules? For Well, yeah, for some villains, for sure. I think, I, I mean, I think pretty much if I was an actor, I would think like playing a villain is probably gotta be, way more fun than playing a good guy. Oh, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, the good guy's going to get paid more and definitely get more exposure, but, I mean, there's something really meaty about Tell the bad to the guy. Terminator. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> but that's because he does a face turn in Terminator 2 and goes from villain to not even villain as the hero. He's just the straight-up hero. But, I mean... I know I talk about T-1000 all the time, but I don't think that he's nearly as memorable as Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, but the very complicated past of the Terminator, uh, Arnold almost didn't want to take the role of the Terminator because he wanted to be the good guy. And James Cameron did convince him and said, hey, listen, (laughs) I think this is the role for you. Um and yeah, the rest is who knows if we would have Arnold Schwarzenegger without having Terminator. 
Do you think that, well, I mean, I'm sure in later Terminator franchises, do you think that they gave Arnold another heel turn where he came back as a bad Terminator? Uh, or is he I, good from here on out? I am a I am a pretty big fan of Terminator Genesis, which is one of the one people like to crap on a lot of the Terminator sequels, but Terminator Genesis with reason with sure um, Terminator Genesis was just like a pure fan fiction film, and in that movie we got to see good Terminator Arnold fight bad Terminator Arnold, and it was pretty awesome i liked it i enjoyed it a lot so i could get into that i could definitely get into that i feel like we've been getting kind of a um a trend of more villain is the hero stories you know you had um what was it maleficent disney's been on this kick lately you had maleficent with angelina jolie uh cruella with emma stone is a is about to come out um, I don't know. I think that there is something in us that likes it when people are bad, when people are messy. And uh, I don't yeah. know, there's a there's an impish side to all of us who wants to root for them. Definitely. Um, I would would you say Wicked? Wicked might have kind of started that Disney revilification vacation idolization trend that started because wicked came out before all the the newer movies right right um yeah i think that wicked is definitely responsible for that i think that that was one of the first villain is the hero alternate you know version stories that people really gravitated to i think once you become a uh, a musical on broadway <laughs> you've reached peak status <laughs> yeah um one of my favorite things i've recommended them on the podcast before as a love bite but proto men proto men uh they do a rock opera based off of mega man lore and they they switch it up a bit and in the in the first proto man album proto man is kind of like a bad guy he's kind of one of those bad guys that's like i'm gonna test the hero i'm gonna fight the hero to make sure that he's strong enough to actually take on the villain mm. and so in the proto man rock opera world they really do a great job of like turning proto man into a villain who you completely agree with because essentially proto man was supposed to kill all the villains the humans didn't want to help him do that so he died and now he's come back to say hey if humans want to survive this robot war they got to do it themselves so he kind of wants to stop mega man so that humans can save themselves which is like you know it's a really cool twist on a villain Right. I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes I, I really do like a villain who has a point. Yeah. Um, although I wouldn't necessarily say either of the uh, villains <laughs> in the movies we picked uh, have a point to their villainy. Like, I, I do think that there sure. are villains where what they're talking about has a kernel of truth. Like, like everything uh, in, in Black in Black Panther, for instance, Killmonger 
as a villain is really great because he's so vulnerable and, you know, he does have a point. Um, but yeah, here I, I'm not so sure. <laughs> so, uh, which of these movies would you like to tackle first? Uh, I could go either way, but I almost kind of want to say like, might as well just get faults out of the way. <laughs> I don't, Our- I'm really curious to know what you think about this movie. I, I'm still making up my mind. <laughs> okay. Because the ending before we get into it i won't we'll we'll discuss it in detail but the ending of this movie did annoy me and it made me sure. a little upset but also i've been annoyed and upset at endings i thought were good endings like i think that the ending of the movie chinatown is the right ending for that movie right but is it also completely infuriating yes Uh, And I'm not sure that this movie is is at a place where I'm ready to say this is an annoying and infuriating ending, but it's also correct for this movie or it's just annoying. Um, (laughs) But I I thought that there were also parts of this movie that that were really well done, character introductions, interesting shots, uh, interesting transitions. Um, but also I think that if you really question this movie, it kind of falls apart in the deposition. It's not a movie where it's, this is a movie that totally falls apart when you really look at its intentions and you're like, okay, well, what's the point of any of this? Um, and and I I don't, I don't think there is one, but I don't think that this movie was made to be interrogated really closely. I think it's meant to just be kind of a, a dark, darkly comic ride. What, what was your sense? I don't know. Uh, I watched this movie pretty much blind. Um, Oh really? So you had never seen this before? Uh, well, before I recommended it for this podcast, <laughs> uh, when I first went into it, I got it off of a recommendation from another podcast, the Slash Film Cast, and it was pretty much like a like if you've ever liked any of our recommendations, just watch this movie. Don't don't no other details. Yeah, don't look into it. And I was like, all right, sure. I like Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, and then I just, I don't know, man, I was completely enth- enthralled from the very beginning. I'm, I really like cults as topics for movies. I do too. We've talked about, uh, what is it? Marcy, Martha, Maylene, Marlene. Yeah. Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Um, oh, yeah. You know the actual title. Yeah. It's got a, it's got a rhythm to it. You got to find the rhythm. Say it um, one more time. Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Uh, <laughs> it's a good movie. You're right. It is. It is a good movie. And this movie kind of did. It came out, I don't know, a few years after that movie. And um, I, I don't know, man. Something about this movie just really spoke to me. And then... It is know, a Brett movie. Oh, yeah. And then... Uh, yeah, I mean, I know that we, we, we recap the movie in full, but... Given the title is villains who are right or villains who who had the right idea all along or however you're going to phrase the the topic. The villain is the hero. Villain is the hero. 
even knowing that I would recommend going in knowing nothing about this movie. <laughs> right. I was a little bit confused why you picked this movie for this theme, because I feel like it's unclear why it fits this theme until two thirds of the way in. Yes. Uh, I, I knew that you didn't really care about spoilers and I didn't tell you anything about the movie, but mm-hmm. I, I knew that like, I knew that watching this with that topic in mind, there probably would be some point during the middle of the movie where you would pause, like theoretically you would pause it and go, does this movie even have a villain? <laughs> like, what am I watching? No, here? I mean, nobody in this movie is a good person. Um, every, everybody's motives in this movie are questionable from the cult deprogrammer to the parents, to the daughter, this sort of toxic quadrangle. None of them have motives that you would consider good. Um, I think that it, it definitely is a comment on the idea of people think of themselves as the protagonist. You think of yourselves as acting out of good intentions, but you can also do great violence or, you know, control other people or be a bad influence. Uh, so I think it, it does speak to that. Uh, and then also I do think that, the movie is sophisticated enough to give us plenty of signs along the way to where you know how annoyed I am <laughs> at twists, at twists that are like, it was a blah, 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 blah all along, or oh, he was hiding in the walls of the house. Uh, <laughs> I think, or he was dead the whole time. No, there, like, there are twists that I think just by being shocking are not enough to sustain me. But I feel like by the time you get to this revelation, there were so many signs along the way that we were heading there that I felt like I knew what was going to happen before we got there. But that was by design. Yeah, I... I don't know, man. There's a there's a part there's a part in this movie that I'll I'll point out when we get to it as you recap it. But like, I was just so totally in like in the moment for every scene of this movie that I wasn't really thinking about the future of the movie. You know what I mean? Like, I was just so engrossed in the characters and and in the situation and in the setting and in this like time crunch that this main character was in that i i really had no idea where this movie was gonna go even though i agree that like by the time it does start to say like okay 90 minutes is up we're we're gonna put a a little bit of a bow on this you go like oh yeah that is I'll tell you the scene, like I wrote it in my notes. I'll tell you precisely the points at which it became very clear to me what was going to happen in the third act. And so I was like, all right, let's do it. Let's get there. All right, let's um, do it. Let's get there. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's get into faults. Uh, so Ansel Roth, he's a writer and a cult specialist 
We open with him in a restaurant trying to use an expired voucher to pay for a meal and they forcibly remove him. Uh, and to top all of that off, he finds out from the hotel manager that he also only has one comped night in his room so they're like um you you stayed past checkout can you clear your stuff and get out of there so already we see roth is completely down on his luck he is a cheap bastard he's willing to lie um i i do really like sort of the plunge in and character introduction about him like we we already know that this is a guy who's not a good guy and right. what's worse, he's a desperate guy, so he's going to do stupid stuff. So then yeah. we get to... And just the level of uncomfortability that this movie goes to right in its first few minutes. I wrote in my notes several times, <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, um, like, But I also wrote that during my best friend's wedding. Yeah, very true. <laughs> but just, I love like the 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 little things of like him him pouring out the ketchup to just eat the ketchup in front of the guy and the guy going like, no, we're not going to do that. Like as someone who's had customer service front facing jobs before, like just that level Have of you like ever forcibly removed someone. <laughs> uh, not off the top of my head, but just that idea of like, no, you're being a child. Like, no, we're just not going to do this right now. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? I, I just ah uh, to to make you know that 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 idea of like should your main character be likable or not? No, he's or, extremely unlikable to the but, point where it's a parody of unlikability. But Leland Orser, who is a a very much that guy actor, he plays it with such humanity. Oh, you know he's, what great. I mean? uh, he's great. He's great. The guy who plays Ansel Roth has you know one of those faces where it's like yeah. you know. He's not beautiful, but the camera loves him. Uh, so, and and I also like the part where the restaurant manager said, "You know, I saw you dig yeah. that voucher out of the trash, and I decided not to say something. Now I'm saying something." Yeah, but that's all. He just says it, and that's enough to. <laughs> Well, I mean, he knows exactly what he means. Right. It's like, yeah, like I, I wanted to give you a break to, to right. hope that you would realize how <laughs> pathetic that action is and, you know, do better. But that's not the kind of person you are. Uh, so Roth is doing a presentation on cults and talking about what it's like to have somebody completely in control of you, something that will come into play later. You know, there's not a presentation in a movie that's not some kind of plot foreshadowing. Like, yeah. I feel like any time a character gives a presentation, they're going to be eating their words uh, uh, yeah. within the next hour and a half. But he gets heckled by this guy who basically said that he's implying that Roth through his deprogramming caused his sister to commit suicide. Uh, and then after the presentation, this couple, Evelyn and Paul approach Roth and they ask for an autographed copy of his book. I like the whole bit with him doing the thing with their $10 bill yeah. to check if it was real. It's just so, so, so sleazy. What a um, great 
great character touch. Yes, it is so sleazy. So Evelyn and Paul, they're kind of creepy and weird. They keep talking about their daughter, Claire, and Roth just doesn't want anything to do with it. Like any good protagonist, he refuses the call. Yeah. He's been there before, and he does not want to go there again. But it's not his choice because he's about to get some outside pressure from Mick. Played by Lance Reddick. Oh, I love oh. Lance Reddick. He's so good in everything he does. Everything I, he everything, does. Everything. Everything. Oh, Lance Reddick is awesome. Um, so Mick, who doesn't even need a gun, he's just so cool. Uh, yeah. That's I I mean, yeah, spoilers for later, but we we we, we learned some things about Mick that that are are pretty great. But this is a character who right from the beginning is mysterious and shady as fuck opens up his blazer and says, I don't need a gun. You know why? Cause I don't need one. And you believe it. Like Lance Reddick sells it. He's just so suave and smooth. Ah, he's amazing. He immediately takes control of the situation. Oh yeah. No, he's, he's, he's great at taking control until he can't. <laughs> uh, so, so Mick, Tells him that uh, Roth's manager, Terry, is firing him, and he, Terry, wants the rest of his money. I'm assuming that it's a book advance, and now he has to give the advance back because Terry doesn't want the book. Also, I mean, we kind of learn later that Terry's not exactly the most wealthy guy. He kind of just has a very small, humble operation, um, but at this point in the movie, you have no idea is Terry a big deal or not. Right. Um, so now Roth has to pay back his debts within a week. He sleeps in his car and wakes up to Evelyn and Paul asking him to go to breakfast. But again, he's flat broke. So he accepts their offer to buy him uh, breakfast. And then they start to tell him about their daughter, Claire, who they think is in a um, a cult called Faults. And over the course of that, that lunch or brunch, Roth basically decides to solve his money problems by agreeing to deprogram Claire. So we cut to day of the abduction. Roth is driving... Two guys are responsible for kidnapping Claire. They drive up to the grocery store. They grab her. One of the kidnappers slaps her in the face, which Roth told him he was not supposed to do. Uh, They drive her to an unknown location. They drive her to this motel. The parents have an adjoining room uh, on the second floor. Uh, Roth pays the guy who... uh, who struck her and, you know, chastises him. And here's where I knew where this movie was going, Brett. As the man is leaving, he turns his head and he kind of sneers at Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Claire. And as he's sustaining eye contact with her, his smile drops and he he looks wary, mm-hmm. which to me is like clearly a signal. She stared back at him. He didn't like what he saw, and he saw something in her that they should be afraid of. 
and they, he decided to get out of there. So the idea that that Mary Elizabeth Winstead was going to give us a heel turn and turn out to be manipulative or possibly villainous, um, I, I from that moment I was like, all right, this is where we're going. Awesome! I can't wait to see for her to fuck this guy's life up. Yeah, I I think that the the story that is being told for Ansel is very much a like, this is not going to go how you want it to go. Like this is not going to be easy, but yes, Mary Elizabeth Winstead sells that moment of unsettling uneasiness because when he looks at her, she looks at him and it's you actually don't see her reaction at all. You only see his, I think, she she does look at him and then she goes back to looking when he leaves she goes back to looking forward blankly at the tv as like like she does kind of give a little bit of a a like i'm taking notice of you and that's what strikes fear in him is like oh shit like yeah like this is not yeah it's good. Yeah. So I from that from that moment I knew, okay, it's on. Uh so Roth starts to um oh actually he first he has her not sleep for an entire night. Uh which is interesting because that's also right out of the cult playbook. Uh if you read about cults, you hear about how they deprive their members of sleep to make them hallucinate and you know all sorts of stuff. So it's interesting that you would use this same methodology for quote unquote deprogramming, which in itself is kind of fraught with a lot of conflict as well, because you know, in the beginning of the movie, that guy says, You murdered my sister, and you are left feeling like you know, whether the cult is bad or not, returning people to their families, especially if their families are abusive, is not a good thing. Um, but he just trusts these parents that they're good people. Uh, so she doesn't sleep the whole night, but she doesn't seem bothered. Uh, he begins talking to her she seems cooperative so he lets claire see her parents because he doesn't want to hide anything from her i think his whole pretense of i'm your friend i'm not gonna hide anything from you i'm gonna be honest i'm gonna take care of you it's so phony and it's so like it 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 rings so clearly phony to her that it just seems like it's gonna be a slam dunk for her to turn around and manipulate him uh, so let's see, Paul, uh, is, Paul and Evelyn are in the next room, uh, and, and they're, they're kind of volatile when it comes to Claire. It's really weird when they have clothes for Claire to wear, but it's like clothes that she wore when she was 16. And so they're too small and Paul's like, you're going to tell my daughter she looks beautiful. <laughs> that was so great, though. Just like you said, the, this movie is a comedy because the the dark comedy aspect of him going like, you are a disturbed individual. Like, clearly this dynamic is not good. And he knows it, but he's so desperate for the money and he's such a weak 
physically unintimidating man that when the father tells him, you will tell her she's beautiful. And he's like, no. And then she enters and he's like, you're beautiful. It, ah, that, that comedic sensibility, it tickles my tummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he really does try to put boundaries in place, but it's just not in his control. He's, he's so weak. Yeah, he's com- he's completely weak to outside influence, which is, of course, dramatically ironic considering his profession as right. a deep programmer. But he's getting bullied by. Um, the so-called father of this uh, this cult victim. So as they are are dealing with this conflict, Mick calls the hotel room and puts more pressure on Roth. He wants the money for Terry. Roth is like, ah, I, let me see. I can probably get half of it up front. So yeah. then he because says, he's, he's shitting out envelopes full of cash. I love that. I love that. Yeah, they seem to they seem to be connected with the guys that helped him kidnap Claire. Yeah, and learning about you know what's going on, um, but it's all through Paul and Evelyn. Right, um, but it's so- not just like, hey, by the way, remember we need that money. It's like, oh, because you took this job. And now you you have access to the money coming. We now like we want it right away, and, right. and we're keeping tabs on you. It's it's such a great subtle distinction of like, you know, putting pressure on that character, but having the characters have motivations. But not everything is as it seems because it seems mm-hmm. like Mick and Terry are this powerful force. Um, but they're really not. Yeah. Uh, so Roth convinces Paul to give him half the payment in advance. And the whole dynamic between the three of them, the, the, the parents and the, it's just real weird. And it's not the, like, you just know that, that him leaving her there with the two of them is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Absolutely. Uh, even, you know, before you know that everything is not what it seems, it's just, if you were to sincerely believe the signs that you were being given, it's just the absolute worst thing for him to do. But he's like, I gotta leave you. We'll lock you in the bathroom. I found it kind of darkly comic, his whole thing of your, your wife, your, your wife is the one who has to stay with her. You can't stay with her. (laughs) You, not you, only right. her. Okay, and then and then also when they would not trade rooms with him. Yeah, that was so uh, funny. You, you guys have a double bed. You have two beds. We only have one bed. I have to sleep on the floor, as you should. Right. I gave her the bed. Good. <laughs> right. So so there's there's a lot of dissonance there. Uh, and so Roth goes to give half the payment to Terry. Uh, Terry gets mad at him and hits him with a paperweight and asks for more money. It's really hard to say, like, I mean, Terry is frustrated with, with Roth and, and I don't know. I, I'm kind of team Terry on this. I, I, I have a feeling that Terry has given Roth a lot of chances. I, I mean, 
I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think that this is a really weird, interesting sort of Tim and Eric alternate universe slum underworld. Like you, like we're seeing, we're seeing a different side of like the bad side of the city, the the scum of the city, these the the dregs of society, like. We're seeing this really weird, interesting look at wood the, paneling. At wood paneling, <laughs> um, and so like you, just the fact that this guy's got to go from hotel to hotel with with his with his props and his books and and sell stuff for for from he's got to basically live from meal to meal, from night to night, room to room, and his manager is a guy who's making it by by taking picture wedding pictures or something anniversary pictures of the, this weird dark universe Tim and Eric couple of just like, it's just strange. But then, yeah, he turns into like a mob boss. Like he's slapping, he's, he's slapping the guy around and he's saying like, if you don't come up with my money, I'm going to hurt you. And you made terrible decisions and I'm done with you. And like it turns into, he he turns into a, a mob boss. Yeah, he seems like he's really scary, but is he? Um, but he's also really effeminate and really. What are you trying to say? Nurturing Brock? and uh, well, I mean, I think clearly him and Michael have a thing going on. But yeah, uh, I mean, if if. If I were Terry and Michael swung that way, absolutely I'd want to have a thing going on with him. I mean, yeah. look at Lance Reddick's dimples. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so it goes it goes as badly as you would expect with Terry. Roth heads back to the hotel, and interesting, I noticed that when um Roth pulls up to the hotel and you see a view of the hotel, there's nothing there. But then as he comes up the stairs, then he sees Claire, um, you know, laying on the ground outside the hotel room. So she claims that she managed to teleport outside of the locked bathroom door and and take herself outside of the room. Uh, and Roth is, is just, you know, so... The pressure is so so on him at this point. He doesn't even know what to believe. Uh, so now he is just completely broken down. And Claire manages to actually get to him. I feel like there's... Uh, this scene kind of made me roll the, my eyes because there is this male fantasy of... I couldn't do anything to stop her. Oh no, this 28-year-old girl is all over me. How can I resist? Um, and I do think that it's more of a fantasy than something that is actually scary. I know that men are afraid of female sexuality, but I just, this whole like, oh no, I can't help it. <laughs> I think that at this point in the movie, I, as as a film viewer, 
And as someone <laughs> as as someone who is also a filmmaker, I have now pushed my chips all in. When Mary Elizabeth Winstead teleports to outside of the hotel room, clearly, oh, you do think she teleported? You don't think she just tricked him? Clearly, the human brain in me said, obviously, things are not what they seem, right? Like, the movie has set this up as a things are not what they seem, what is really happening, uh, you know, riddle wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a whatever. But at this point in the movie, I'm like, you know what? I'm all in. I'm going to buy the premise full stop. Whatever the movie throws at me, I'm going to take for Mm -hmm. sure. And in this moment, I think it's interesting because, yes, Mary Elizabeth Winstead seduces him in a way. But also, it doesn't take much to seduce him. He's he's a very tired. He's very weak. He's very tired. He's very weak. He also is probably a character who has not had any kind of intimacy in a long time. So... Also, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is not really sexual. I don't know if I'm going to use the right words here, but she's not really sexualized in the movie, right? I mean, when they put her in the tiny clothing, I think that that is a deliberately provocative moment where he is trying so hard not to sexualize her, but she's waking him up wearing his shirt. Now his shirt smells like her. She, he's forced to say she's beautiful in front of her so-called father uh, while she wears tiny clothing meant for somebody 10 years younger than her. But... Because she's 28. The clothing is from when she was 16. Right. But but the way... Which is perverse. The, it's it is. deliberately perverse. It is. I agree. It is deliberately perverse. But the way that the movie is shot, like, I don't know... Uh, like I guess the the male le- the male gaze, right? Like I feel like this movie doesn't have that as much. It, I mean, it's not as male gaze. Like there's no like close ups of her ass and tits and like where it's like so obviously ogling her body and like I I don't think that it's like that and I think that that the movie and the director who was married to her at this time actually um what what is the director's name Riley Oh yeah Riley Stearns Riley Stearns was married to uh Mary Elizabeth Winstead when this film was made and she produced it as well Right uh so there are a lot of moments in the movie where she is permitted to be just unsettling right Uh, and there's really nothing sexy about the performance and it's not meant to be sexy in in any way she's just unsettling and and her her sexuality or her seduction of him is just another way in which his freedom is lost it's less about this sort of icky I, I don't know. I still think, though, that that there is this male fantasy of like, I couldn't stop the seduction. I I had to I had to lose control, um, which is for me as much of a fantasy as it's a nightmare. Right. I, yeah, I think this movie does a good job of of 
making a very quickly turning that into a nightmare because even just the way, like you said, the way that it's shot, I think a lot of the lighting in this movie is crazy nuts because a lot of it is done in almost like a, it reminds me of punch drunk love where it's mm. almost lit like a sci-fi. Like it feels like we're in an alien spaceship as opposed to a hotel room. Yeah, it does feel it's, it's uncanny Valley or it's uncanny. It it feels yeah. weird. It feels like we're not quite in reality, but um, so he, she, she tells him, I need you to sleep now. She's in control. He wakes up uh, to sitting in front of a television playing an old interview between him and the sister of the guy who heckled him earlier. Her name is Jennifer. And he is watching this. And then in the background, Paul is having sex with Claire. What? Yeah. Uh, gross. Hey, no kink shaming. No no regular shaming. I think we can shame incest. Oh, right. Yeah. I don't I think forgot. this is about a kink. I think that it's meant to be gross and wrong. Yeah, I forgot that part. <laughs> um, yeah, he's, he's her dad. Or is he? Uh, so anyway, after that incredibly nightmarish uh scene roth wakes up in his car he runs back up to the hotel room and he finds claire by herself and she says oh my parents they left uh they they said that they couldn't save me uh and roth wants to know where she got that videotape uh and and what the hell is up with her trying to seduce him like all this stuff And then he accidentally locks himself and her in the bathroom. Door closes. It locks from the outside uh, because uh, he had originally rigged the door to do this. uh, But now it's working against him. Once again, all of his plans are working against him like Wile E. Coyote. Yeah. and then the, the the phone starts to ring while they're in the bathroom. He freaks out. He knows that it's Terry. Claire then becomes Mama Bear and starts counseling him through the whole thing. And in a mirror of their first interrogation scene together, now she's asking him the questions. And he is the things that he said would happen to her her questioning her life, questioning her values, coming to see a different side of things. All of those things are now happening to him. Right. Um, Also, there's there's just stuff like when she says you shouldn't ask questions that you know the answers to, she deliberately asks him questions she knows the answers to in this bathroom scene to to get a very explicit response. Or she says, I want you to feel. Just like he says at the beginning, you know, like, I wanted you to feel in this conversation. Right. Um, she yeah. she uses his own tools against him. And the rate at which she's able to turn him into one of her acolytes is pretty swift. Like, her ability to turn him from a regular culty programmer to a false guy, it, like, happens within 10 minutes 
Uh, so, he was already on the edge. All he needed was a little, he didn't even need a push. He just needed a little tap. <laughs> yeah, to, to widen that fault. Right. Make, turn that crack into a fault. Uh, so, yeah, she she totally turns him. Uh, he He's just completely broken down. And then she tells him, open the door. And, of course, this time when he opens the – when he turns the handle of the bathroom door, it's not locked anymore. Is it magic? Is it foolery? Who knows? So they get out of the bathroom. Mick comes into the hotel room, and we don't see what happens to him, but it's it's a very much the kind of cutaway where we can assume that Mick was overtaken from behind. Terry is sitting in the car. He decides to go up to the hotel room. He he goes in, and it's this is a very horror movie moment where behind the door is Mary Elizabeth Winstead, right. and then she's wearing a dress that has vertical stripes, and so does the wall behind her. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, she did blend in for for like a hot second there. Uh, and then uh, Terry sees uh, Roth, uh, and now Roth is—he's got a new lease on life. He, Terry doesn't control him anymore, uh, and Terry sees what they did to Mick, and we learn that Mick is not some tough, mysterious enforcer. No, no, no. Mick is just an actor that Terry hired to intimidate Roth. Poor Mick. This was just a gig with like maybe a cute guy that he was going to date afterwards. It was never meant to be like this. It sucks. Uh, It sucks so bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, Terry, Terry gets murdered and the murder object is the book that he rejected, which is, you know, of course, symmetry. I also noticed that virtually no blood is splattered onto Roth's suit. It all makes it onto the book, but no yuckies on his suit. He's good to go. So they leave the hotel room. Roth is sitting in the car. Claire asks him to wait for her. She goes back up to the hotel room, knocks on the connecting door where Paul and Evelyn are. Uh, and they they reveal that they have killed the guy who slapped her during the abduction. And then uh, Claire tells them they've done an excellent job. I think we're meant to assume that they are clearly members of faults. Uh, and I mean, I freaking hope that they weren't her real parents. Otherwise, that sex scene with Paul was just really gross. Um, but. Then uh, Claire takes this little pendant from around her neck, pops out two little pills, gives them to uh, Paul (laughs) and Evelyn, says she'll see them on the other side. They lie down. I guess they're going to commit suicide and take credit for the uh, killings of Terry and and Mick. Uh, And then uh, Roth, still in the car, Ask Claire where they're going, and she says, home. Aw, he didn't have a home before. That's nice. He didn't. Yeah. It was a happy ending for them. Right. I think 
one of the one of the the genres that we like to highlight on this podcast is cat versus cat. And I think what makes this a really good horror movie is that while this movie starts out as a cat versus cat kind of premise, which is we're putting a cult deprogrammer and a cultist in a room together, and we know that only one of them is going to come out on top. Like the movie kind of is, even though I knew nothing about the movie, right? The movie is setting this up where it's a chess match. We know automatically this is a chess match. We know things aren't what they seem. We know that there's going to be twists and we know that there's going to be turns. But the horror of this movie is in Leland Orser realizing that he's not a cat at all, that he is just a mouse. He is a mouse that thinks that he's a cat. And he keeps trying to do cat things like right. using the expired voucher. You. But he can't, nothing he does that is underhanded is anything that he could actually get away with. Right. But he's trying to, he's trying to, his whole job is to be in control and to show people that he has his life together so that he can help other people get their life together. His whole job is to be confident and to, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, but that's kind of the beauty of his character is every single moment, every single choice he makes just shows you how out of control he really is. He doesn't right. control whether he gets to eat, where he gets to stay, whether right. or not people are going to be silent during his seminar, whether or not yeah. the person that he's hired to do this job is going to get violent. And and gonna, much both, like with Paul, they're like, what are you going to do about it? What yeah, both of the it? henchmen don't follow orders. The one the one guy smacks her around a little. The other guy falls asleep. The The husband and wife don't really do what Any of the things should, he like, tells them to do. Right. Or he needs to be more assertive with stuff like, asking for the room you know what i mean like he he when he's asking them to switch rooms he he doesn't flat out ask him to switch no. rooms, which means he doesn't get the answer that he wants because he hasn't asked the right question so yeah all of this stuff is happening to him and he clearly needs he clearly needs help he clearly like whether or not being a follower is a good thing or a bad thing in this movie is something up for debate because when you follow people, sometimes bad things happen, right? Michael got killed by following Terry, but uh, when Leland Orser follows, uh, uh, when, when Ansel Roth follows Claire, you know, technically things start to look up. Would you really say it's looking up after he's killed two people and now he's essentially going on the run? I do. I, I 100% do. There are some movies that we're definitely going to get into spoiler tag warning territory as, as we wrap up this conversation. But there are movies like Ex Machina or there's another one that I... I, I I, I can't remember off the, uh, it's, it's on the tip of my tongue, but a movie like Ex Machina to me is like, yeah, even though there are 
bad things in that movie. The overall, oh, Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler's the other one. Uh, these are movies where like the good guy is the bad guy, but the the reason why he's the hero is because he's doing things that we we as an audience probably want to do as well. We want to have more confidence in ourselves. Uh, in in Ex Machina, like, yeah, we want to have free will and we want to be able to, whatever. In, in Nightcrawler, yeah, we want to be able to have a successful business. But the methods that these people take to get their goals are twisted. But then again, they're put in these scenarios where like morals and ethics aren't, really black and white situations and i think that the end of the movie is an uplifting sort of sci-fi weird ending of the movie where like you could it's a argue, twilight zone ending yeah i i i think that i don't know uh, uh to, to use terminator to bring it back to terminator uh terminator one and two are clearly like the canon of terminator there is right. Terminator 1, there's Terminator 2. Essentially, that's all you need from the Terminator franchise. Uh, Terminator 3 is a fun little, like, spoof, almost, parody of a Terminator movie. 4, I wasn't a big fan of. Genesis, I thought was an excellent fan fiction movie of, like... Does this have a point? <laughs> yes, yes. And then Dark Fate came out, and Dark Fate was kind of underwhelming. But the point is, like, if you take just the first two movies, you kind of have everything you need and everything else after that is just pure fun and speculation. Mm -hmm. If you take everything in this movie up until the part where, where Ansel Roth teleports outside of the door, spiritually astrally projects himself outside but of the did door. did he really but, do that? Or are they, are they <laughs> gaslighting him? But it doesn't matter because now he has the newfound confidence to take control of his life and to not – to not for, for the first time in the whole movie, things are looking up. Things are coming up Millhouse. <laughs> and like everything after that moment is kind of like Terminator 3 through 6. It's just speculation. Like, yeah, we need it because it's a narrative and and we want to have a satisfying ending, but from just the from just the spiritual side of things, that's kind of the end of the movie. I'm not interested in the law of the movie. Like, as far as I know, the cops show up and go, oh, it's an open and shut case, Johnson. These two crazy people killed these other two crazy people. The end. As far as I know, like, Mary Elizabeth Winstead isn't out for evil. She doesn't do anything inherently... Well, she's God. She's Iris. Right. She's, so, so... she's the one who directs people within the cult. But I kind of... I, I, I kind of see it as, like, her... It, her she, she doesn't have any evil intent. And, yeah, him his fault, his... His fault. She was has, super turned on when he was killing Terry. She did the look like on her. She the look like on that. her face was like, "Yeah, that's what I'm talking about." I, uh, I think she's more proud of him than she is turned on by the by the 
the blood oh, like, lust. Like, oh, he's growing. Yeah, like my little baby. His wings are spreading. He's learning to fly. Like, and this experiment has paid off because this we we were <laughs> we were like three lines of dialogue, rational dialogue away from this entire charade falling apart. Um, uh, yeah, I I don't know. I just. Movies like Nightcrawler, movies like Faults, movies like Ex Machina, where it's like the bad guy is – the to me, the bad guy isn't bad in this movie. Hmm. So this right? is another thing where you're like, the bad guy has a point. I think the bad guy has a point, but also I think, again, like this is kind of like a – maybe not litmus test is, is the wrong word, but like holding a mirror up to you. Like I think what people take away from this movie probably says a lot about them. Um, you know what I mean? Like people probably see into this movie their own faults and their own – you know what I mean? Like this, oh. this, yeah, this movie does that uncomfortable thing of like when Ansel has to – confront himself in the bathroom and like say i'm a failure like that's a that reminded me of the master the 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 scientology thing the what, what do you call it i reminded me of that scene in uh, there will be blood when he says i abandoned my boy yeah yeah which is very much like the master in scientology paul thomas mm-hmm. anderson uh punch drunk love yeah it's very much that character like having to uh, reach down and and admit his faults but his admit his faults um uh, i don't know i just so... i am deeply deeply in love with this movie also this is the kind of movie where i have only recommended it to a few people because i know it's not the kind of movie you can recommend to a lot of people and even then no one that i have recommended this movie to has liked it so i i know <laughs> that i'm <laughs> I wouldn't say that I didn't <laughs> like it. I I right. just I wasn't I was not enamored with it the same way that you were. Um now before we head into the question, um any final thoughts on faults? Um Yes, there was a movie that Sonia recommended to me and we watched together once called Le Doulos. And Le Doulos is a heist film by a French filmmaker. I can't remember which one. But in the movie, it's a very heisty movie. You never know what anyone is doing. We we stopped for a popcorn potty break and she asked me, do you like this movie? Like This was very early when we started dating. And she was like, do you like this movie? And I was like, I don't know yet. Like, I just don't know. I think this is one of those movies where it's really going to come down to does the director stick the landing or not? Because mm-hmm. I right now I'm just putting all of my faith in the director. And I think that this is the same kind of movie where like halfway into this movie, I could have paused it and said, I have no idea if this movie is going to turn out to be good or not. This movie could completely miss the landing but to me it doesn't and to me like if you're willing to again go all in on the movie the what the movie gives back to you is is like tenfold um but yeah i think that the movie i think that the movie did what it set out to do i think i would have been upset if the movie ended with him 
oh, successfully deprogramming her. And right. she says, I want to go back home with my parents. I, I would have thought, well, that's not at all what you promised me right, right, in the right, beginning right. of this movie. You promised me that she was going to be in control at the end. Because th- so any any ending outside of she has complete control over him wouldn't have rang false with the premise of this movie. Yeah, but it's the way in which it's done. And again, I, I have zero pessimistic, negative feelings towards the end of this movie. I don't feel like this is some evil alien entity who's now going to take over the world and start their own shadow government. Like, I, I feel like this is, I feel like the ending of this movie is a happy ending. Not for everyone, but in relative terms for everyone generally speaking you could describe my best friend's wedding that way too oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) that'll be Uh, a fun one to go over so gotta ask the question who from this horror movie did you have a crush on well, I think everyone in this movie absolutely crushes it, but the, I, I will say for the sake of this viewing, I specifically did have a crush on the slappy guy, slappy around guy. I oh, think the first the first kidnapper. Yeah, he's got that sort of fifties motorcycle thug. Oh, he <laughs> like, did. He kind of had he's the whole like a greaser. Thing. Yeah. yeah, he's kind of hot. Yeah, he's he's very much like a scumbag right from the beginning, but I like that leather jacket. Yeah, he he really like he's a character who's playing a part. Everyone in this movie is playing a part, right? Uh mm-hmm. Michael is playing the part of a heavy. The two parents are playing the part of disturbing controlling parents. He's playing the part of an intimidating thug and whether or not he actually has any kind of criminal past is up for debate. I think he he probably could just be like a good guy who who is out of his like who's who's i don't know what i'm saying but him you liked him, him. I, I liked him he's i mean clearly he's not a good guy but he's you know he let me put it this way he maximizes his screen usage to great effects so that when they do call back to him at the end and she goes, Hey, you took care of that guy who slapped me for no reason, right? Your brain immediately goes, Oh yeah, that guy had it coming. <laughs> right. Like, right. Oh, you thank God they put a bow on that end because yeah, I wanted that guy to die. He slapped her for no reason. So yeah, I had a crush on that guy. Uh, how about you? Who did you, Oh, Mick, all the way. Oh, I yeah. love so Mick. And I really love the idea that he was able to create so much intense mystery about him while being not actually that mysterious. He's just an actor. That's it. Yeah, and he never once, I think, even threatens to harm Ansel Roth, no. right? He implies the implication. There's the implication of threat, but he never, yeah, he never actually, actually does that. So, yeah. Good and stuff. I just, I think that Lance Reddick deserves so much more recognition than he gets. Yeah. I agree. 
All right. Well, let's get into some remixes. The this these two were really hard for me. My my remixes this time are are really um but I, uh, what about you? <laughs> same here. Yeah. All right. Well, let's be the bad guys and <laughs> and read off our less than perfect pitches. Uh do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Uh, you can go first on this one. I'll go first on the, on the, fr- my best friend's wedding. Oh, I would <laughs> love I, it if you had a good, oh, I don't, no. I don't. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so I called this one kind to a fault and Aww. I will admit that I partially or a lot chilly, uh, <laughs> based this on a book I call, I, I read called the afterlife of Holly Chase. Uh, so yeah, recommendation for that book. Uh, so kind to a fault is about Claire. She works for a secretive organization called operation Goodnight. It's unclear whether Goodnight is run by angels or what, but they definitely traffic in the supernatural and maybe they have gadgets that, that bend the will of space time. Uh, many of the employees have been there for a number of years. They don't age, uh, and the purpose of Operation Goodnight is to redeem the unredeemable. Goodnight finds Scrooges, villains, jerks, and, you know, through their supernatural programming, brings them, or reprogramming, brings them into the light. So maybe there are some branches of Goodnight that give you the traditional Christmas Carol experience, where they take that person through, you know, Christmas past present and future and then maybe other branches have different ways of teaching people lessons like um you know there could be a whole one for a liar liar type operations or (laughs) or turning or the branch that turns people into animals yeah yeah just 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 all all sorts of ways in which to teach bad people lessons so they become good people so Claire works with the faults branch, which covers extremely difficult cases. And everyone in the faults branch is somebody who failed the program. So Claire and her two coworkers, Paul and Evelyn, are all bad people that failed to reform. And as kind of their purgatory or punishment, now they have to work for the operation and save other people from having their fate. Um, so Claire and co they get a new case. It's cult deprogrammer Ansel Roth. He looks familiar to Claire. She realizes she knew Ansel in college before she, you know, died or disappeared working for the organization. Uh, and maybe, maybe Claire feels really attached to Ansel because she knew him before life turned him into a weak asshole. And she's like, oh, this isn't the Ansel I used to know. So she starts breaking the rules to interact with him because you're not supposed to interact with your targets, obviously. Like you can't have day-to-day interaction with them, but she decides she's going to do it anyway. And we'll say there's, you know, a conflict in, in her leading this sort of double life where she's during the day, dating Ansel, but then at night she's working with the Goodnight team to comb through his memories and put a case together to 
to, you know, reform him. Uh, and, you know, Claire is privy to all of Ansel's most painful memories, um, but he doesn't know anything about her. So she starts to feel bad for lying. And then the big night where they're supposed to give him, you know, let's say they give him the Christmas Carol treatment or something like that. Maybe Ansel recognizes Claire uh, and he's like, what are you doing here? What is all of this? And then maybe she breaks down and she says something like, I'm not this girl who you thought I was. I'm actually a fuck up. And if you don't listen and if you don't change, you're going to end up just like me. And in in this organization where you're just in servitude trying to help people be better. Uh, and this big speech from Claire, it, it turns out that it's actually Claire who's being evaluated, who's being deprogrammed. She thinks that she was helping Ansel when this whole time her coworkers, Paul and Evelyn, and we'll say maybe maybe we'll throw in Terry and Mick in there. Like Mick seems like a great Lance Reddick is always great in roles where he's the leader. Like whether mm-hmm. he's a commander or a manager or the president of the company. So maybe it turns out this whole time they have been trying to redeem Claire. And the only way that they could get Claire to really change was if she wanted to save somebody else that she cared about. So Claire is freed from having to work for the company. She and Ansel can now live happily ever after. And everybody's happy. I wrote at the end of my pitch, kissy, kissy, happy ending. Yeah. That's, uh, I assume that's how most rom-com scripts end. Kissy, kissy, happy ending. Kissy, kissy, happy ending. Um, yeah, I like it. I like that. I, I, I always like that sort of bureaucratization of the afterlife and spiritual. Mm-hmm. Like the adjustment bureau. Yeah. Or Beetlejuice. Oh, I love Beetlejuice. Yeah. That's a good um, villain is the hero movie. Or, I mean, I guess he's villain is the villain, but he just outshines everyone. Yeah. Um, villain is the megastar of the movie. Um, yeah, I I kind of, I have a very soft pitch in this case. Have you ever seen Four Rooms with Tim a Roth? A really long time ago. So basically, my movie is Four Rooms. Uh, this is going to be a sequel. So we start with um, Ansel Roth and Claire or Ira driving away. And maybe she like tells him all about her plan to make the world a better place. Right. And in order to do that, she's going to need his help to because, you know, he's a cult deprogrammer so he has a lot of the inside knowledge of what cults do which is why they say in the movie like now that we have his knowledge in his reach we can really spread the word of faults um so when did they say that it's a it's a it's a throw it's maybe not a throwaway line but it there is a line where um sparkle motion mom (laughs) donnie darko mom um she she does mention it at one point and so leland orser uh ansel roth is going to be in the movie he's going to be like 
he really wants to do a good job, right? Because this is essentially like his new lease on life. So he wants to do a really good job. He wants to impress Claire. He wants to do, do all this stuff. And so she goes to the hotel or they go to a hotel and they go into a hotel room and then she has to leave him. And she has to say like, okay, here's my master plan. Like here's my binder full of my master plan. Uh, don't go through it because this is for me only, not for you. Don't go through it, but I have to leave. Just like you left me to go do your stuff, I have to go leave and do my stuff. So she leaves. And when don't she leaves- Don't read this book. Don't eat these apples. Don't go into that room. Right. But you can don't have a open pop. that jar. <laughs> the pop is pretty cheap. You can have a pop. I like when he says pop. Yeah. That was um, a very uh, Northeastern to me. Right. Like, oh, we're not in Texas. Um. And so, of course, what does he do as soon as she leaves? He opens the book to read through it because not for any malicious intent. He just he really wants to do a good job and impress her. So he wants to, like, get a head start and, and like, look at the game plan. But when he does that, all of the files fall out. So then he has to put all the files back in. And then he realizes that the people that they're supposed to go influence next, the people that they're supposed to go put pressure on and falsinize are in the hotel room. So he's got to now go to these people in the, in this hotel and like help them do stuff. And what they're going to do is he's going to help them become a couple and then hijinks happen. So Four Rooms, for people who don't know, Four Rooms is Tim Roth plays this bellhop who is mostly like a silent bellhop type Buster Keaton and a silent movie animated character type of guy. And he just goes into these four rooms and has hijinks. And that's what this movie is going to be. But we're going to tackle like four areas of what makes a good relationship. So the first one is going to be commitment. And so maybe these people have like, they're going to commit to the perfect date that they said would happen 10 years ago, right? So we're going to throw a little bit of my best friend's wedding in. Like maybe 10 years ago, these people filled out a form that said, this would be our perfect date. But good old Ansel Roth has got all the papers mixed up. So he puts the wrong couple on the perfect date. And oh, he's, no. he's got to do like Wallace and Gromit. He's got to be like the guy behind the scenes who's like, oh, no. The perfect date included seafood, but she's allergic to seafood. So he's got to like run around and find the EpiPen and shoot her up with an EpiPen or like switch out the seafood or like hijinks. This movie is just going to be hijinks. In one of the other rooms, there's going to be communication. Uh, And so there's like maybe a restricting thing where like he takes away, he accidentally takes away part of their speech somehow again using like maybe some of her faulty magic stuff i don't know like he takes away their voices and then they have to learn how to communicate from the little mermaid yeah and then maybe it turns out that even though these people weren't the people who needed to work on communication actually do end up you know obviously all these things are like even though this wasn't the right lesson for this couple they end up learning and growing from it um respect and trust is one thing that you need in a good relationship and so maybe somehow a couple gets involved in something that involves injury and then he has to like help the other person with surgery and like 
perform emergency surgery on this other person. Like when Mr. Bean drops a peanut M&M yeah. into somebody's open surgery wound. Yes, just like that. So it's like hijinks and silly. And like, even though the other person isn't really a surgeon, because again, he's got all the papers mixed up, like they figure it out. They work together. They do this thing. So it's fun. Uh, And then intimacy is the last one. And it's like, maybe this couple needs intimacy stuff, but we're going to have like a bunch of religious game things. Like, you know, religion and sex gets weird. So maybe like, he finds this thing that he thinks is like sex toys, but it's really not sex toys, but he tells them that it is. And then like, you know, we can have like twister, abstinence, education, pamphlets, something like that. But we can have like a game, like a board, like twister. And like, they try to like make twister sexy, all that kind of stuff. But in the end, when Mary Elizabeth Winstead comes back and she finds out that all of her papers are messed up and that all of the couples are whatever, it's like, there's this big scene where she's like, you ruined this, you know, go back to where you came from. But then all the couples kind of like end up supporting him in ways that show that they actually did learn the lessons that they were really supposed to learn. Oh. And then Mary Elizabeth Winside is like, oh, wait, never mind. You're actually, you're, you're a pretty good guy. You're, you're still my little puppy dog. And it's a happy ending because everyone's happy. And then the implication is that they're going to spread faults across America, but it will be good for everybody. Ah, another kissy, kissy, happy ending. Yeah. we. I like those kissy, kissy, happy endings. I like it. I like it. I mean, it's not... Yeah, I we, we did phone it in this week, but... <laughs> That's exactly what a villain would do. Right. This was not a heroic week for either of us, but that's okay because you can tell us what you thought about it over social media. That would be Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're on all of us. You can also follow us and rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts or email us feedback at necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. Now then, let's get into some villainous little love bites. What do you got for us this week? Oh boy, Uh, I know that you're familiar with the Japanese TV show Kakaider, which is not based off of an anime, but the anime is based off of the live action show. I think it's one of those rare instances where the live action show came before the anime slash manga. I've never heard of this thing. Kakaider is a movie or show about something, but much like Proto Man, Proto Men's, it's yeah, it's like about future society, and it's it's very Tetsuo Bullet Man. It's very much like uh, Giver. It's very much uh, like this this uh, cyber genetic body horror, existential horror, Japanese anime one-upmanship kind of thing. Um, uh, this movie that I watched called Mechanical Violator Hookider. Hookider, not the same as Cookider. Hookider is the bad guy from the Cookider series, but he got his own spinoff movie where Ooh. he plays the antihero. And in this movie, he just walks around and kills bad guys 
and he doesn't really know why. It's very anime. It's very Japanese. Hakaider. Hakaider. Uh, it's uh, it's a crazy movie. It is a crazy movie. It is probably one of the most live action movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, uh, live action anime movies, I should say. Which is bizarre because it's not technically based off of an anime. And it just makes it all the more unique. I would say... And it's short. That actually immediately is a big selling point. It's an hour and 17 minutes, yeah. Perfect. It's perfect. I would say... You know who the audience is for this movie. You know who you are listening to this recommendation. But much like some of my other recommendations, I highly recommend watching the trailer and if the trailer doesn't do anything for you just well, that's know that's different for you you never watch trailers uh i don't like to watch trailers for movies that i know i'm going to watch so like when i found out i i, I saw this movie on letterbox someone that i follow on letterbox watched it and rated it four stars and the 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 the, the cover for it looks like a japanese manga live action thing so I was like, this looks right up my alley. Um, and so I watched a little bit of the trailer before immediately stopping and going, holy shit, this movie is batshit. I got to go in. I got to go in cold. Um, but yeah, it's just a guy who is an indestructible villain who beats up other people who are worse villains. And it's very Power Rangers. It's very, like, it's a guy in a suit punching plastic suits, but the plastic suits explode, so it's violent. But it's not violent, it's cartoon. There's always someone worse, right? Uh, always a bigger fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about you? Do you have, I'm very curious to know, because usually you, you go thematic. I usually go thematic, and prior to this, I I looked up, I googled villain is the hero movies because I wanted to refresh my memory on some of the other movies that fit this trope, and one of my favorite movies of all time came up on several lists, and that movie is Amadeus. Have you seen oh, Amadeus? I have. It's been a while, but yeah. I love Amadeus. The villain is the hero, and the villain hero in this case is a rival composer of Mozart's named Salieri. And Salieri hates Mozart because Salieri knows how good Mozart is and also that he, Salieri, will never rise to the heights of artistic genius that Mozart has reached, while at the same time absolutely despising the way in which Mozart as a person just acts like this complete child and buffoon. And for Salieri, who kind of considers himself to be so refined, to see this childlike buffoon create the world's greatest music at the time just hurts him that much more deeply. And I just, I feel like Amadeus is the perfect picture of artistic jealousy. Uh, and I continue to enjoy it. It's very melodramatic, but I think that it's well done. I think it has an incredible soundtrack with, 
you know, of course, some of Mozart's greatest pieces, but Mm. also some of the scenes around music are really interesting. Like there's a scene where Salieri starts reading some of Mozart's sheet music, and he just can't believe how great Mozart is. And the way that he narrates the scene as he's telling this other guy about what it was like to be around Mozart, it's just, it's very well done. All the time, I will watch clips from Amadeus on YouTube as they come up because I think they're hilarious. Uh, and if you've never seen the movie, it's it's worth the watch. And if you've never seen the movie, you probably know the scene that Sheer is referencing because it's a highly paradized uh, scene. It's been parodied in a lot of movies. It was God. God was laughing at me. <laughs> um, yeah, Amadeus. It's been a while since I thought about that one, but that's a good choice. That's a good villain. That's a good villain movie. Ah, oh, yeah. There's just so many. There's so many great scenes where Salieri just eats shit, and he just feels <laughs> like shit because it. And and like there. I feel like like when you're jealous of someone, you just pick out these things about them like, oh, look at that fool. Look at that absolute buffoon. But then right. they just do things that you could never even achieve. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> it sucks. Um I guess one thing I probably should have mentioned earlier was like, yeah, this is a, this movie is about a guy, uh, faults. It's about a guy who, who puts his, his livelihood, his, his, his relationship and his, his career and everything into one artistic creative endeavor. And that creative artistic endeavor falls through. And then that causes him to go on a downward spiral of depression and i think that's very relatable as a as a content creator as a filmmaker as an artist like yeah you know i i've i've put some i've put some energy into some stuff that's ultimately been like eh. and you're like oh man but then uh just the- why we always talk about how hitler was a failed artist right <laughs> Uh, but then, yeah, it's like in this movie, this is what happens when you have n- no one there to be with you or to you just get lost in your own thoughts. And then you got you to gotta start following someone else. That's how it shakes down sometimes. All right. Until next time. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.